Blue Jays are. As Bichette cranks another one. Deep left center. It's gone! A three home run game for Bo Bichette. Man, oh man. Hey, what's going on? It's At The Letters, brought to you by Miller Lite, the original light beer. Today is Thursday, September 8th. Arden Swelling and Ben Nicholson-Smith, our producers, are Luis Ramirez and Christian Ryan. Ben, I quite literally minutes ago got back from Baltimore, where the Blue Jays played four games in uh, three days against the Orioles, and each game was like its own soap opera novella like there was so much going on in each one and there were like a million different little storylines and character arcs and uh it just plot lines transpiring i know you were watching from here in toronto what was kind of your favorite of all the plot lines and all the storylines that we saw in baltimore which one did you enjoy the most Oh, there's some good ones. There's some really good ones. I got to go Brian Baker. Um, yeah, like, I, you know, you think about Jeff Nelson, of course, but I don't like it when umpires become big characters and I don't want to feed into that. So I'm just going to set that aside. But Brian Baker, <laughs> that's, I mean, there was a lot going on there. That was some pretty entertaining stuff from Brian Baker as he interacted with Teoscar Hernandez and the whole Blue Jays dugout. And this is a guy with some history with this organization and and really to me, the Baker episode, which you obviously were witnessing firsthand and talking to the players about afterwards, but it just underscores, hey, like these games matter a lot, not only to the Blue Jays, but to the Orioles. And we're at that point in the season where things are really getting interesting. So yeah, I would pick the Baker one out of everything. So we could start with the Baker thing, but like I do, I would say mine honestly was as as uh, reticent as I am to pay, let Jeff Nelson be any more of a character in this than he very clearly wants to be himself uh i did think the gosman nelson thing was actually probably yeah. the more the most interesting one just because it was so ridiculous on so many different levels but like let's start with with yeah brian baker v teoscar hernandez slash the entire toronto blue jays dugout and like it, it, you know as i sort of learned more about it and talked to more people about it and kind of dug into the history a bit more it sort of crystallized what we saw in the moment because in the moment it was like you almost, if you weren't really, really watching Baker in the moment, you wouldn't have even seen the gesture towards the dugout. But the way the Blue Jays just all erupted onto the field, it wasn't like just one guy or it wasn't, you know, it didn't kind of simmer for a little bit. It was literally like every dude in that dugout is on the field in an instant. And a swing and a miss. Chapman strikes out. The Blue Jays get a run, but still trail by a run. Seventh inning stretch. And now, wait a minute. Now the dugouts are clearing. And it looks like it has something to do with Baker. And is it Teoscar Hernandez being held back? This is a guy who was in the Blue Jay organization for a couple of years, made one appearance, and Teoscar is heated. It should have dawned on me at the time, oh, there's a history here. Like, oh, there's got to be like something that's been going on here because it just it, the reaction was just so immediate and loud and visceral that it was like, of course, it wasn't just over baker just looking in the dugout once or just making a motion 
once and that like by now everybody with a twitter account has seen like the history that chris black sports and producer went through and dug up with baker and the blue jays and that's some of what i was hearing like in the clubhouse and, and from the people i was talking to with the jays just about like <laughs> how long this has been simmering it's funny some of these little things that happen in a game that you don't even notice right that are sort of imperceptible unless you are like absolutely like razor locked in or unless for some reason you would have gone to a blue jay and i don't know why you would have to be like hey what do you think of brian baker um but like this was something that built over time for one reason or another brian baker has been like taking little shots at the blue jays and having little remarks and little celebrations for a while every time he pitches against them whether he gives up runs or not apparently which is what i heard from you know more than a few people in the clubhouse was like did you give up runs on back-to-back days and like you know, teoscar took you really really deep like i don't know if that's the spot to be doing that sort of stuff but it is a cool reminder of just like how much is happening on a baseball diamond and how much of it we don't even really notice in the moment exactly especially this time of year um where you've had some time for these things to build and these inter intra-division games right where the balanced schedule might take away some of this but the jays and orioles have seen a lot of each other and they will continue to see a lot of each other in the next few weeks as the regular season comes to a close here but baker of course someone who was in the blue jays system acquired from the rockies in the sangwon o trade a few years back and he was briefly in the system for the blue jays pitched i want to say one game for them in 2021 um and you know so he's been around yeah he was on the team for a week he's been around at spring trainings never a a prominent blue jay uh, by any stretch and even now i mean look he's in the major leagues that's not easy to do um he's throwing 100 miles an hour that's obviously not easy to do he's an okay reliever on an okay team you know he's not mariano rivera he's not josh Hader out there he's not even felix batista now that being said if he's going to celebrate in a way that is just for himself and he's just going to enjoy a big moment like a strikeout, I have no problem with that whatsoever. Of course, once you start getting to the point that, you know, he's making some pretty rude gestures and, you know, if you're getting into a fight with Teoscar Hernandez too, like Arden, you and I have been around Teoscar Hernandez for years now. He's, to the extent that we can see these things, he is a very chill individual. He's someone who almost always has a smile on his face. He's not an easy guy to get into a fight with. Like, you don't see media members in fights with Teoscar Hernandez. You don't see players. Like, he's just a pretty chill individual as far as we can tell. That obviously comes across in the dugout and in interviews. He's got a big smile on his face a lot of the time. And Brian Baker's getting in a fight with Teoscar. Like, probably says something about Brian Baker. But, you know, maybe there's more to come on that front as well. We'll see. Teoscar, super amenable guy. Like, just very chill, down-to-earth, friendly, easygoing. Um, just, like, everyday, consistent, sort of the same. Just energy. Uh, yeah, not somebody that you would have figured would be in the middle of that confrontation, which should have been a tell as well. And it's funny, like, it's not just me. It's even, I was talking to somebody on the Blue Jays who, uh, you know, hasn't been a Blue Jay all season. And I mean, he, you know, it's like everybody's coming out of the dugout. Okay, off we go. We're on the field now and everything's really intense. And even he was saying like, why are we out here? Like, what's like, wait, yeah. wait, why is everybody so mad at Brian Baker? And it had to be like explained to him the history of it, right? And just like the little gestures and the looks and the commentary that has been transpiring throughout the season from Baker towards the Blue Jays. And then I had a, another Blue Jays player kind of tell me, like, it's ridiculous because we didn't DFA him 
as in like we the players like nobody in the yeah. nobody in the dugout makes roster decisions none of us like <laughs> none of us didn't give him an opportunity when i guess he felt like he deserved it none of us cast him away from the organization like we don't make those decisions we're all just playing baseball why are you mad at us like why are you yeah. directing that towards us we had no say in any of this and if anything you ended up going to baltimore where you did get an opportunity and got to be a big leaguer and got to pitch at the major league level and now you're a reliever on like a team that's battling for a postseason spot you've been earning big league service for a long time and big league pay and all those good things you weren't getting that opportunity in toronto it was a good thing that toronto let you go so i i I do think there are some people with blue jays who just think like that's just how the guy motivates himself right like that's just where he kind of gets his competitive fire from and that's how he kind of gets himself up for for big moments and sure i guess but like it's even funny to hear teoscar hernandez after the game you know telling me in her ash like I thought I was cool with that guy. Like <laughs> He was a Blue Jay last year. I thought we were cool. I wasn't talking. I've never said anything to him. I've never pimped a homer against him. I don't know what I did. Yeah. And it's in such contrast to like, let's pick Josh Donaldson, right? You know, he's someone who is chirping other players. And, you know, there were times when he, he would be the one making gestures or comments from the Blue Jays dugout. And at the time, all right, like there's a case to be made. There's it's it's competitive. It's a competitive game. Any way that you're going to find an edge, that's okay. You can find it. Like Alec Manoa, who I'm sure we'll get to. I mean, he's someone who pitches inside. That's, to some extent, maybe it's an intimidation factor. But it's also something that enables him to have huge amounts of success against right-handed batters. And I don't think it's a coincidence. Alec Manoa, you know, you watch him warming up before games. He's always stretching into the opposite corner with the other pitchers warming up. And I always wonder, like, does that get on the other guy's nerves? Like, it, it kind of must. Then someone like Shohei Otani is, I'm sure, you know, too composed. And I don't want to say too polite, but just, you know, full of, full of patience, it seems. And I don't think that he would necessarily say that to Manoa. But I don't know. There are times where Manoa can kind of push those things. And that works. That's part of the game. So I understand that for Baker. But I do think you cross a line. When you start just making overtly rude gestures and picking fights with guys who are just, you know, playing the game, um, <laughs> picking fights with Teoscar, I, I think that does cross the line a little bit, but it's certainly entertaining. I forget who it is. I'm blanking on the guy, but there is a, a hitter with a, a team that Blue Jays play a lot who always stands off of the batter's box, like towards the backstop, sort of like within the pitcher's vision when right. he's delivering. And I can't, I'm blanking on who it is and I don't want to name the wrong name. I think it's a Yankee. And uh it like it's little things like that, right? Like you mentioned, you know, Manoa warming up in the corner. Like, you know, some of those like little sometimes you'll even see I, I think Manoa's done it, or a few guys have done it, like Blue Jays walking off kind of the field after their warm up, the starter. Yeah. A little bit late. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like that happens and you'll notice like the pitcher will be almost getting ready to pitch. Yeah. And Manoa is he doesn't mind doing this. Right? And I don't I don't think that's a problem necessarily until someone calls you out, right? Like if you're gonna take that space, that I think that's actually okay. Now, you could imagine a scenario where another team might take issue with it. Um, but I, I find it really interesting. And even like I wanna see we were in New York doing ATL stuff and they had the Paul O'Neill ceremony. Was Manoa starting that day? Yeah. I might be conflating things in my yeah. mind, but you know, there'll even be like this Yankeeography happening and he's just like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to get ready. 
I love those little things, right? Like those, I'm going to take this little inch. And because it's so small, you're not going to say anything about it, but this is going to send a message to you that like, I'm that dude. <laughs> like I'm a dog and I'm here to compete. <laughs> yeah. Like I love that ultimate competitor stuff. Some of those little things that happen on the margins is like so interesting and fascinating to me. Can we talk about my favorite storyline, yep. which was the the Bach, which wasn't a Bach, but he called Bach against Kevin Gossman by Jeff Nelson, which was like just the most ridiculous thing that I like. It's I people every night there's some strike zone that's improperly adjudicated or somebody gets a quick trigger, like ejection, whatever. And everyone cries, ump show. This was the, like one of the more egregious ump shows I think that I've seen because of the situation. You think about how important that game was game one of a double header against the Baltimore Orioles, Blue Jays and Orioles entered that game. They two and a half games separating them at the time. Super, super important, tight game. Kevin Gosman allows his first base runner and the very first pitch he throws with a base runner on, you are now going to put him in a zero out runner on second situation in a tight game, a really important game in a playoff for his team on a delivery that was the exact same as every delivery Kevin Gosman has used this year. 2,600 plus pitches. He has had the exact same delivery and not been called for a balk. And in fact, the very next pitch look at my story i put them side by side the very next pitch with that runner on second is identical to the pitch prior and it is not called a balk so either that is a balk or it is not if you're going to call it a balk the first time you have to call it a balk every single time after that because it's your job as an umpire to enforce the rules and you have now clearly indicated that this is a rule that you were going to enforce and something that you were watching for so when the guy does an identical thing on the very next pitch you have to call it and Jeff Nelson didn't call it and didn't call it for the rest of the game he just called it that once in that situation I am not at all shocked that Kevin Gosman was irate and that he called out Jeff Nelson by name after the game I think it's good that he did because like that was just a horrific example to me of an umpire injecting himself putting himself into a position or into a game making it about himself in a way that it never should have been. If there was really an issue with Kevin Gosman's delivery, that message could have been delivered between innings during the foreign substance yes. check. It could have been delivered to him before the game. It could. There were so many junctures at which to say, "Hey, I'm going to need you to, you know, to make sure you're coming to a stop in your delivery, or else I am going to have to call this against you." That never happened. Jeff Nelson came into that game to make that call. It was premeditated and it put Kevin Gosman in a terrible position. I just thought it was bonkers. Yeah, it, it was pretty wild. And, you know, it, it's one thing if there's a pitcher who's coming up um, and maybe his delivery, like remember Patrick Murphy and his delivery and, yep. you know, some of the some of the changes that he had to make. All right, like if you're calling box on him, this guy's basically a rookie in the league. Like, okay, that's that's part of it. You know, he, he's not he's not established. The umpires don't necessarily know him. Every umpire knows who Kevin Gosman is. They know what his delivery is. You can offer like a polite reminder. And if he's, you know, if he's clearly breaking the rules after that, you've done your diligence. But, you know, what we saw here, I think, is also in contrast to like, let's say, for example, egregious ball strike calls. And like, 
we're going to see more egregious ball strike calls as the games start to matter more. Those calls will be highlighted more. They will feel bigger. They will feel like they're more common. Of course, they happen all the time. They happen on May 21st when people are watching the Leafs and they happen on July 5th when people are at the cottage and they'll happen in two weeks from now when the game feels like it has so much significance and then we'll fixate on it. And I'm just, I'm not a huge fan of fixating on ball strike calls because I just think they even out in the course of a season. But that being said, or, or even like the home plate rule, right? Like people don't like that rule for the most part. There's an agreement that it needs to be changed. And I don't think Kirk did anything wrong on that play in Baltimore. But look, it's the rule. It's the way it's being called right now. You kind of move on from that. But Nelson, in contrast to that with the Bach call, really did insert himself into the situation. And it just, you know, I, I think I would say this even if it was Jordan Lyles or even if it was Garrett Cole. It's like, these guys are established pitchers. We don't need to be calling box on them all the time. It doesn't make anyone's experience of the game better. No, I don't, what are you trying to prove? Like, what's like, what's your point here? Yeah. <laughs> why, why? Why are you doing this? You know, because Kevin Gosman didn't change his delivery from that point forward. He kept delivering the ball the exact same way. So then what was even the point of that entire exercise? Like, what was that about? Um, there's something with Jeff Nelson, man. Like he keeps popping up in these spots. It was the Oakland game earlier in the season when uh, Chapman and Goriel had like some pretty egregious, uh, you know, strikes called against them on, on pitches that were off the plate. And you can look up the ump scorecard and how slanted towards Oakland it was in that game. Jeff Nelson behind the plate, game six of the 2015 ALCS. Uh, I don't need to remind anybody about that. Like. No, Pete Walker is like the only person even still like what in the organization who was there for that right wow. like you know really? when you think about wow. it that's right? a lot of turnover yeah you know I mean I mean Mark Shapiro was just coming in essentially right yeah. so Tony LaCava would have been around but it's like nobody on nobody in uniform other than Pete Walker right yeah you'd have front office and, and development people but yeah for in uniform yeah. That's how far back we're going with the Jeff Nelson yeah. thing. And then it was the, a night later, John Schneider getting chucked by Nelson you know, for arguing from, from the dugout. And, and Schneider you know, told us after the game, I just asked if that ball was down. I just said, did you have that down? And Nelson chucked him out. And then you know, Schneider got like every dollar of his money's worth <laughs> after that and i think unloaded like quite like a long build-up of grievances with nelson that the blue jays have had so there's just like so many little like subplots in this series that yeah you mentioned like the the play at the plate which ended up not being particularly consequential i guess in that game but like man i think alejandro kirk did exactly what the blue jays would tell him to do he started he set up in fair territory he let the the throw carry him into foul territory i think you know maybe there was a little hesitation in the middle of his movement from fair territory to foul territory as he crossed the base path like that's me looking for why that ruling and why that judgment was made the way that it was maybe there was a little bit of a stop there but i feel like that is a rule that is going to come back around in the postseason at some point in yep. somebody's series in a big spot and that's going to be a major talking point at that at that point in time it absolutely will. Um, speaking of catchers, this just occurs to me quickly here. So um, Moreno was called up while you were there with the team in Baltimore. How long do you think his stay? Is he just here while Teoscar's on pat leave? Or, or do you think that he's going to be here for longer? Obviously, he could come back later as well. 
Yeah, that's that's my sense. I think that's what it is. The Blue Jays are like, we got enough outfielders <laughs> as yeah. it is. Like we're, we got a lot of outfielders you know, all over this clubhouse right now. So I think, uh, yeah, they just kind of figured we'll bring up Moreno and and you know, maybe we'll find a spot for him to pinch hit. Um, yeah, I think it's just get some work in with the big league club, see how the you know pregame meetings unfold and, and what it's yeah. kind of like to be around a team at this time of year when everybody's super locked in and you're kind of in a postseason push. Uh, yeah, I don't think it's going to be a long-term stay for him yeah. just like i don't think you know mitch white being optioned uh on yeah. what was it on wednesday now um he's got to stay on option for 15 days but he's going to pitch on tuesday in that double header yeah. he's going to come Makes back sense. as the 29th man the blue jays it's so interesting they're at this point in the season where they're in a postseason push and they need to win every game and they need to be like managing the bullpen in the way that john schneider has been where it's like anthony bass is coming in the fifth inning you know like it's you're going to leverage guys a lot earlier you're extending jordan romano to two innings i mean you are trying to set up your rotation so you're having as much manoa against orioles yankees orioles tampa as much gosman against those teams as well that's the push the pull is the schedule is a second doubleheader in the span of two weeks is the fact that the Blue Jays go to Texas this weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then don't have an off day after that ahead of what is going to be five games in four days against the Rays and then straight in to another weekend set. Like the, the Blue Jays are just having to cover innings right now and like cover innings in like a May, June, July way. Like at that point in the season where you're like, yeah, we're going to throw a bullpen day. Yeah. You know, we had to option this guy. We didn't really want to and call this other guy up because like, you know, we're just kind of thin in the bullpen. We just got to get through this stretch. The Blue Jays are like covering innings and getting through this stretch at a point that they're in a playoff push. And it's not because they've mismanaged their rotation or mismanaged the innings that they're giving to their bullpen. It's because of the schedule. It's because of what it is. You're going to see the Blue Jays throw a bullpen day on Sunday. It's going to depend how things go Friday and Saturday. It's going to be Stripling and Gosman in those two games. They get a couple deep outings there and don't have to burn their bullpen too much. You're going to see another like Pittsburgh Pirates-esque from that game a week ago bullpen day where it's like trevor richards for two and here's kikuchi for two and now here's like four other dudes to get us to the finish line and then you're going immediately into a huge series against the rays the schedule is not the blue jays friend right now yeah and it's probably the last time that they're gonna have to cover innings in this way um once you get to that final stretch of the season if they're doing really well, if they've if they've established a seating that they like, then maybe you can ease back a little bit. Um, maybe you give Kikuchi a full start, or maybe you let you roll with Mitch White. Obviously, that's getting ahead of things. On the other side, if you're getting toward the end of the year and you haven't secured anything, then you might be skipping those fifth starters. You might be bringing back a Gosman on a short rest if you really have to win game 161 or game 162. So again, we're getting ahead of ourselves either way with that discussion. But this is that that stretch kind of in the middle of September where they do need to cover a lot of this. And to me, this is where, you know, to go back to the trade deadline, you see how, you know, Mitch White really hasn't done very much for this team. You see how, you know, Zach Pop has been optioned back and forth. He's been useful. You know, Whit Merrifield really has not impressed. And I think that most importantly, they're just an arm short for this period of time. And once you get to the playoffs, you roll with Gosman, Manoa, Stripling, Brios. You've got some, a bullpen that has really pitched well in the course of the last five, six weeks. But one more arm for this period of time really would have helped them if they had been able to do that. 
Yeah, you really only hit on Anthony Bass at the trade deadline. Yeah. Was it? And I think you know it's hard to kind of put like Zach Pop in a miss category. Like he's yeah neutral maybe. Yeah, right. Like he's been. I think he's a, a good reliever. He's just been caught up in a couple of roster crunches, right? Because he's optionable, and the Blue Jays have a bunch of vets in their bullpen who you aren't going to option, and the, you got the pitcher limit this year, right? Like if this was a, a previous season and you had like the full forty man up. Um, for September, yeah. I mean, we wouldn't even be having some of these conversations. Yeah. But because Moreno would not be on the team right now. <laughs> because you have 28, you know, it's the Blue Jays are having to make some tough decisions and having to think about when they option guys. Like, you you know, they're going to have to bring somebody back this week to perhaps make a start to provide some length out of the bullpen. And it can't be Casey Lawrence because he just optioned him unless you use him as the 29th man on you know the Tuesday doubleheader, but it's really my belief that Mitch White is going to be that 29th man on the Tuesday doubleheader. So now you don't even have the Casey Lawrence option unless he's replacing somebody who's injured. So now it's like Thomas Hatch, right? And we saw what happened the last time Thomas Hatch pitched at the major league level. He's been having some okay results at Buffalo, but the stuff did not play at the level, and that would be for games against the Tampa Bay Rays, who are really good, right? You're not throwing you them against that. You're not throwing them against the Pirates, you know, like yeah. after after the weekend set against the Rangers, it's really the last like really sort of lousy club that you're going to face. And they're not even that lousy offensively. Right. Like when you think about some of the bats that they're going to run out, I guess you got one more series against the Red Sox late in the season. We'll see what they look like then. But I know every series from here on out is going to be like the biggest series of the season. But I don't know, man, five games against the Rays next week just with the schedule the way it is and the blue jays pitching staff the way it is five really big games that is a huge series at rogers center well absolutely i mean you just think about any five game series anytime you're playing five games in four days that's big then it's at home you know after a very long road trip that so far is actually going amazing they're six and one on it as we record this on thursday so it's return home it's five games in four days most importantly, division rival, right? Like the Rays and the Yankees and the Jays are only separated by what, six games, something like that, as we record this. Um, and the Jays and Rays are neck and neck. So that's has implications for the AL East, has implications for the wild card, for seeding, for home field, for tiebreakers, for all these different things. Um, so those games are very important. And hey, if you have to pitch Mitch White in a doubleheader, that's fine. I mean, teams you know, have to cover those innings at a certain point. But I, I, you know, I I do find that at this point in the season, they do seem to me like a team that could use one more arm. The one game they lost in Baltimore that, you know, you have Kikuchi in leverage, you have Richards walking a couple guys, you have obviously Mitch White starting that game. It was a game where they were clearly short on pitching. And so it would be ideal to have a bit more, you know, they're not alone in that department. The Yankees obviously were very cavalier with their own pitching depth, trading away Jordan Montgomery. And that's a, a mistake by the Yankees as well. So the Jays aren't alone in this department, but I feel like they're one arm short at this point with four weeks left. I know. And I asked around about that game a little bit as well. Just the usage of Kikuchi in that spot, particularly after Anthony Bass had gotten four outs on seven pitches, even the usage of Trevor Richards later on that spot. And like the answer was, look, we're like, we are, yes, thinking about today, but we're still in a spot where we're thinking about covering innings going forward and who's going to be available Mm -hmm. in coming days. Like, which is kind of like what I'm getting at is that a team that's like, in a postseason push in September shouldn't have to be making like innings covering 
decisions. If you messed up your rotation or you just don't have enough pitching depth, and yeah, maybe you can say that about the Blue Jays. If you screwed up your reliever usage, like fine, you you made that bed. But it's like the schedule made this bed for the Blue Jays. And the the next baseball person I talk to who is happy about there being nine inning double headers again will be the first person that I talk to. Yeah. Nobody nobody other than people who like cash commissions off ad sales and commercial yeah. deals is happy about that. People wanted yeah. like the seven inning double headers and wanted them to continue. I was watching Yankees Twins the other day. It was a like game one of a double header there in the twelfth inning. I was like, yeah. what? This is game one of a double header. What oh, is yeah. happening? Teams shouldn't have to be like doing the innings covering thing. In September, there should be an, an adjustment, I think, just either to the length of doubleheaders, to the way the games are scheduled, to the off days, to the roster limits, to the option limits in September. Like, I do think there should be adjustment made going forward for September with roster rules, just so teams can feel their best lineups, can like use their best players and put the best product on the field instead of having to be like, well, yeah, I mean, we'd like to extend Anthony Bass right now, but we kind of want him to be available tomorrow. And we also want to burn him out out of like a really important series next week where we're going to play three times in 48 hours. Yeah. And the, you know, the double header thing is it's not even for, for gate receipts, right? Cause you can sell tickets no matter how many innings the games are. It's not for beer sales or parking. It's it's truly for the for the broadcasters who want to be able to package those those ad spots as they're as they're used to doing, and it's a compressed season this year, so there are fewer off days per month than what you would normally see because the year started on April the I don't know eleventh something yeah. like that. It wasn't March thirtieth or March thirty first the way it normally would be. So, is there a March thirty first? Anyways, know, that's man. not the point. Use your nuts, something with your knuckles. I don't know. Yeah, that's what yeah. you're supposed to we'll, do. We'll leave that. We'll leave that for another day, as the <laughs> listeners of ETL scream at me through their uh, through their headphones. But either way, uh, the Jays are in a point now where they do have to strike that balance. And um, you know, you look at you know two weeks from now, that equation will change, and they will push for every single game that they have to. And here's the thought process for the Blue Jays right now. It's all right. Let's get Manoa and Gosman into as many games of consequence as possible. So that is going to be Tampa Bay. Like that's why you're going to have the bullpen day on Sunday in Texas, because it's like, all right, if we have to use a fifth starter and our fifth starter right now is our bullpen, we're going to do that against Texas Rangers rather than against the Tampa Bay Rays next week. So you're going to have that bullpen day on Sunday and then you're going to you know, line up a Manoa against Tampa, which would allow him to come back against Baltimore the following weekend, come back against Tampa again at the Trop the weekend after that when there's a four-game set in St. Pete, pitch early in that series, come back again for the much-anticipated rematch with the New York Yankees, you know, hashtag Audi sign uh, in Toronto the final week of September. And then Manoa would be available for that final series in Baltimore, those final three games. Same thing with Gosman. You're trying to line them up to pitch in those crucial series and to have your like, quote unquote, fifth starter come up when you're playing the Rangers or when you're playing the Red Sox. So like, that's how the Blue Jays have tried to line this up. The best laid plans go awry all the time, but they've charted out that way to get their best pitchers into the most meaningful games and try to put these soft spots of their rotation in these soft spots of the schedule. Well, absolutely. And what, what they need to do or what they'll have to do a few weeks from now is ideally those last two games of the regular season don't matter. And you're able to pitch Mitch White and Yusei Kikuchi and line everyone else up. Because the last thing you want to do 
is burn Kevin Gosman and Alec Manoa in games 161 and games 162, and then you go stripling, Barrios, and bullpen game? You don't want that. With your season on the line, you do not want that. And I'm sure for, you know, if they were facing elimination in game th- game three, a series is tied 1-1, they would have Gosman or Manoa back on short rest. No doubt about that. But you just, you want to avoid that scenario. So you need to win as often as you possibly can right now to put yourself in a good position so that you have either home field or at least a playoff spot locked up. Who knows? Maybe the AL East is in play. Um, one of those scenarios. And, and by the way, uh, March 31st is a real date. I confirmed. <laughs> <laughs> confirmed so, i don't uh, want to keep anyone in suspense <laughs> we were all waiting for that update uh yeah you need to make that final series against baltimore camden yards irrelevant that's what that's what mm-hmm. you need to do you like you said you need to have kikuchi lawrence hatch starting those games yep. and you'd have bradley zimmer playing like 21 innings right <laughs> like that you know that, that's what, and yep. you need to have you know just like george springer resting and vladdy off his feet and like all those things like you you need to Make sure those games do not mean anything for your postseason fate. Down the road, we could talk about, would you rather be the second seed? Would you rather be the third seed, right? Like, would you rather go to Seattle? Would you rather, you know, whatever. Would you rather go play the the whoever the winner of the Central is going to be? If it's Minnesota, if it's Cleveland, if, look out, maybe it's the White Sox. We could talk about all that stuff down the line. But right now, the focus is don't have anything meaningful on the line in Baltimore on October 3rd, 4th, and 5th. And that is a big ask, and I don't think they'll be able to do it. I think there's going to be a lot at stake in those games because it's just it's so closely packed right now. I'm not sure if they can create the separation necessary to do that. So, you know, we'll see. But I think that has to be the goal. And it's, you know, the best case, as you said, is you have Thomas Hatch starting one of those games. And you look back, I'm sure a lot of our listeners remember 2015 game 162 against Baltimore, the lineup that they trotted out there. It was it was something to behold. <laughs> um, it was it was not the Batista Eddie lineup. I can tell you that. So we'll see where it goes, but I think it'll be tough to avoid. We'll see where that where that leads. I mean, as things stand right now, like if you were entering the final week of the season now, it would be irrelevant. But Baltimore's four and a half games back, right? So you just got to keep right. Baltimore where they're at right now, and then and you're clear, you're good, and you've got three games in Toronto against Baltimore uh, a weekend from this weekend when you can, you know, when you can knock them further back. The Orioles do have a lot of Red Sox on the schedule in September, I believe, so they might be able to kind of hang around for a while, but like, it's funny, we didn't even really talk about baseball and sort of looking back at the Orioles series, but like what the Blue Jays accomplished there and what Alec Manoa really, you know, made sure they accomplished in the final game of that series was winning three out of four and knocking Baltimore down and suppressing them and creating that separation that you're talking about. It's huge. I mean, you think about how how easily this could be different right now. You know, if they had gone one and three instead of three and one, totally different discussion. So they did themselves some huge favors this week. Uh, Let's step away, but when we come back, I want to take a little confidence check on uh, some of the Blue Jays starters who, you know, are in the non-Manoa, non-Gosman class and and check in on a couple of hitters as well. All that so much more when we continue on At The Letters. It continues on at the letters Arden Zwelling, Bed Nicholson, Smith. Our producers are Christian, Ryan, and Luis Ramirez. And it is time now for Major League Beer for Major League Baseball. Brought to you by Miller Lite, the original light beer. Ben, 
I'm actually going to have to recuse myself from this conversation because uh, I'm going to have a vote this year for the American League uh, MVP award. So I can't tip my hand and I can't let anybody know what I'm thinking. But like we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the biggest debate in baseball right now. And that is Aaron Judge v. Shohei Otani for the American League MVP. So I'm not kind of just going to put you in an impossible position to be the only one to offer a take on this but the floor is yours understanding that there are four weeks left in the season which direction are you leaning what an incredibly tough call for you and the other voters to make the times that i voted for mvp i think it's been easier like i think there was a bets here i think there was maybe a couple trouts in there so you know sometimes it is clear-cut this year it is i think it's as hard a decision as it's been probably since Cabrera Trout, which in hindsight probably wasn't a hard decision. It was more just a close debate. But regardless, Otani is having an incredible offensive season that would get MVP votes on its own merit. He's also having a Cy Young type season that legitimately is one of the best pitching seasons in the American League, along with your Verlanders, McClanahan's, Dylan Cease, Manoa, obviously in that group as well. So it's incredible. And yet Aaron Judge with 55 home runs could easily set the American League all-time record. He could be one of the top home run hitters in an individual season of all time. Uh, First 60 homer season in 20 plus years, potentially. It's incredible what he's doing. And so I kind of wonder how this debate would be framed if they were on the same team to kind of take the team element out of it. Like if Judge was on the Angels, the Angels still wouldn't be good. If Otani was on the Yankees, how would this be framed? I mean, I think they're close. War says they're close. I think the last four weeks will determine it. Um, at this point, I would probably lean judge over Otani by a little bit. But And especially if he hits 60-plus home runs and sets an American League record, to me, it's going to be really hard to deny him. But Otani's doing things that are totally unprecedented as well. So it's really a win-win. These guys are both incredible. They're having amazing, amazing years. They deserve to be celebrated and for baseball to be in a position where they have two seasons like this for the likes of yourself to be choosing from at year's end, it's a great, it's almost best case scenario for for MLB to have these two stars having such amazing seasons. My only prediction is it's going to be quite a debate and that there's going to be a lot of fallout yep. from you know whoever does win it and how people vote. And uh, there's going to be a lot of lawyering of like how you actually interpret what the award is meant to be recognize i almost feel like and we can do a a segment later on the season about how we would change the awards uh you know if we were kings of baseball but like the i would wonder if you should just call it the most outstanding player award because it is almost hard to figure out an interpretation of valuable you know what i mean absolutely and i think that those debates have been had internally um you know as as you look for the best way to carry on these awards moving forward i don't think mvp is going to change anytime soon and the the directions in there are just vague enough to allow for a lot of room for interpretation clearly i mean the good news is whoever wins this award out of those two they're going to deserve it (laughs) you know like we're not going to have an undeserving winner right so we're not going to look back in years time and say wow that was really a really bit of a miss like whoever wins this thing is having an incredible incredible season Yes, no, absolutely. Like you're not going to see somebody out of left field uh, come in to win this thing. I think it's going to be no. one of those two individuals, and they will definitely deserve it. Let's do a quick confidence check on a bunch of guys on the Blue Jays roster that we just haven't had a chance to have a fulsome discussion about because there's been so much going on 
with this team, but they are going to be important to the club down the stretch. I want to start with Jose Brios because the Blue Jays are sort of lining up their rotation down the stretch, prioritizing Alec Manoa and Kevin Gosman in games of importance. And now here's Jose Brios with starts being pushed back to accommodate bullpen days. And he's kind of, he's not quite in the like, you know, let's put the back end guys into the soft spots of the schedule category, but he's also not really a priority in how the Blue Jays are lining things up. What do you think that says about where Jose Brios is at right now? And, and where's your confidence level in Jose Brios right now? Who's going to have to start some really big, important games down the stretch, whether the Blue Jays like it or not? He will have to, no doubt, and potentially in the playoffs as well. I guess to to answer the first part, I think it almost makes sense to go bullpen game against Texas, an inferior team, and then start Barrios against the Rays where it matters more. I think that makes sense, and you get Barrios a bit more rest. Now, as for my confidence level in Barrios, it's pretty low. It's stayed low for a long time this year. It started high, and then it steadily declined, and I'd say it's kind of reached a a low level where it's basically remained. I know his it's last in few low. starts. Yeah, it has settled in at low. Yeah. And I know he's been better. I, you know, you wrote about it, his last start and pointed out, I think in that P, I forget the number, but you know, his last four starts or something, he's been solid. Um, I so wrote that the results have been better. The results. I, yes. The results. <laughs> I didn't write the process has been better. I actually wrote that the process hasn't been great. And, and so that's what you care about the most, yeah. right? And so if the fastball is getting hammered, it's hard to have a lot of faith in. Yeah, and the fastball is getting hammered and the curveball isn't getting swing and miss and nothing's really getting swing and miss. It's it's really an issue. You look at the results from that outing at, uh, at Camden Yards and it's like six innings, two earned runs. You take that all day long from Jose Brios and from anybody in your rotation. But then you look deeper and it's like, oh, you missed four bats on the day and three of them were with your change up and one was with a curveball. That's a problem. Jose Brios needs to be in the swing and miss with the curveball. And then you look at, oh, the fastball got absolutely hammered on the day and you gave up a ton of hard contact with it and hitters didn't seem fooled and they seemed able to tee off on your heater. And it's been the most perplexing thing all year is like why suddenly Jose Brios's stuff, which seems to be in line characteristic wise with where it's been earlier in his career hasn't been as effective and why hitters haven't seemed fooled i you know i was kind of subtle about it for a long time and then i stopped being subtle about it i thought he was tipping for like a very long time earlier this year and then you saw that little mechanical tweak where you move the glove up in front of kind of the the chin and you flare out the glove so that hitters can't see when and how he's manipulating the ball um, and he's had tipping issues earlier in his career as well. That's why he wears a mouth guard so that he can bite down on it during his delivery. And there isn't a tell with his mouth in his delivery, which is something that he had earlier in his career. Hasn't seemed to solve things. The results have been better. But as we're saying, the process just hasn't been there. So I'm with you. The confidence level just isn't super high in him. I need to see him missing bats. I need to see his fastball performing better. And I need to see some better tunneling of of the fastball and and the breaking stuff and, and some better lane usage for Brios before I'm really going to trust him in, in a in a big way. Yeah, exactly. And and look, I mean, if we're talking about 2023, which we're not, they're in the, they're in the stretch run of a playoff drive here. But if we're talking about 2023, he is on the list of pitchers, and there are others that we'll get to in this segment. He's on the list of pitchers where you say, you know what? I think actually he can probably help this team next year to some degree. But right now, that confidence level is pretty low. Mitch White, confidence level for you. And this is one where both process and results don't look great yeah. lately. 
Yeah, low. Again, low. I just, he's looking like someone who's, uh, you know, a, a low leverage mop up reliever in the games that count most from this point on. Of course, there could be spots where he has to start. Maybe the doubleheader is one of them. Maybe there are more starts after that. But really, you know, when you're playing the games at the end of the season that matter most, regular season playoffs, he's pitching low leverage. It's mop up. I, I don't think there's anything more. And I, I know, like his his FIP or his ex-FIP, those numbers are like half his ERA right now. So the advanced stats would say he's been a little unlucky. And no doubt he has. But he's still not striking a ton of hitters out. Uh, the walks are still a little bit high. And it's not just the walks. It's how he gets there. You know, we saw facing the bottom of the Orioles lineup, whenever that was, Tuesday, Wednesday, at some point this week when he was pitching. And he's not attacking them aggressively enough, um, not using the fastball against those hitters, the eight, nine hitters, when he's got to put them away. And so we saw that against the Guardians here in Toronto through six consecutive balls. Again, I think he'll be good in 2023 and can help this team. It's a nice long-term acquisition. The short-term, I'm not sure how much he's done for this team. Yeah, I like Mitch White for 2023. I like Mitch White with a spring in the pitching lab and working with the uh, the Blue Jays developers and some of the things they want to do with him, some of the tweaks they want to make, want to use that change up a lot more, want the, you know, to really hone in on that sort of back foot slider to to lefties, which you've seen him using a bit here now. Um yeah, you raise a really good point is that in that third inning when it was like you know odor and uh, whoever else is at the bottom of baltimore's oriole you know mateo, mateo yeah or like who you know austin hayes it was i'm in a two strike count and now i'm flipping up a bunch of spin and a bunch of sliders and hitters are just getting into that defense mindset and they're sitting on the spin and they're fouling off and fouling off and now you know i was one two after three or four pitches and now i'm looking at like eighth pitch and ninth pitch and now i missed with one and now it's a full count and he's not going to his fastball in those spots i think it's really hard to trust your fastball on the plate mitch white throws sort of hard i mean 94 you can get up to 95 but still like if you're not throwing 98 99 if you're just going to throw 94 95 on the plate it does take a bit of a leap of faith right like it does you know i think for a lot of hitters a lot of pitchers excuse me they struggle with that but it's also part of what makes like really good pitchers really good is they realize I'm the pitcher, I inherently have an advantage. And my fastball inherently is at an advantage against big league hitters who still have to hit a round object with a round implement and make good contact and avoid the fielders that have been positioned optimally behind me. So you need Mitch White in those two strike counts to be trusting his fastball or to be locating a slider on the plate for strikes. Too many sliders you know, in those two strike counts were like, ball to ball or edge to ball like you need to land that slider on the plate for strikes do what alec manoa does get weak contact do what kevin gosman does kevin gosman's fastball is on the plate all day long he is not scared at all of fastballs in the zone and yes it's backed up by like an unbelievable splitter which is quite an equalizer Mitch White has a really good slider. You know, it just moves in another direction from the splitter. That can be his backup pitch. That can be his equalizer if he's locating that for for strikes or at least making it look like more of a strike. That's going to help his fastball play up. So I think that it's really just a mentality thing for Mitch White and just being in that attack mindset with two strikes, not getting into those those deep battles. And that's something that I know he actually talked to Kevin Gosman about after that start, the day that he got optioned, him and Kevin Gosman had a very long conversation in the Blue Jays 
dugout and and in the outfield as well and they went through some things with some lanes and and target setting you know mish white's been a guy who's typically set his target on the glove and with alejandro kirk behind the plate you'll notice this oftentimes he'll set the glove and then he'll drop it and then i think for mitch white a lot of time he's like oh wait where'd my target go my target's gone so a little tweak there is setting your target on the shin pad or setting your target on like the face mask those are some of the little things I think that Kevin Gosman was trying to share. And some of the things I think Kevin Mitch White can benefit from now is just changing the mentality and making some little tweaks to be on the plate more in those two strike counts and to be more aggressive before some of the bigger adjustments that are going to come next spring. Yeah. And to me, that's interesting stuff. And it kind of sounds like a pitcher who's a work in progress. And this is not the time of year in September to take big leaps of faith on works in progress. You want finished products. You want guys who give you results right now. And unfortunately, in the case of White, that doesn't seem to be where he's at. Bullpen. Julian Merriweather. Level of confidence right now. Are you throwing him in leverage? Um, Right now, no. But my level of confidence, I would say, is to be determined, which is probably better than low. It's better than just, you know, a a clear, yeah, there's not confidence here. I'd say it's just uncertainty. I'm not sure what he can offer. I haven't seen enough of him. And I think that the answer clearly will reveal itself in the next couple of weeks. To me, you start him in low leverage, continue easing him in to the extent that that's possible, and go from there um, in the hopes that he can get to that point, knowing that he has this stuff to certainly be a high leverage option if needed. But I mean, do you see that differently at this point? Have you reached an answer for Merriweather? I think you want to give him some runway just to find his feet. He's pitching at the big league level for the first time in a while. Obviously had the physical Mm -hmm. issues earlier this year. So you want to give him a little bit of time. I think the biggest thing with him is like the fastball can't be over the heart of the plate. Like, cause it doesn't move a lot, his fastball. And like, that's okay. If you're 97 to 99, it doesn't move a lot. That's okay. You just got to be to the edges or you got to be like to the very top or very bottom. Like you got to be around the edges of the strike zone when you're over the heart. Big league hitters are too good now. They see this type of velocity all the time and they can turn yep. it around. Guys turn around Felix Bautista. Oh, the freaking Bobichet walked in, walked up to the plate and turned around Felix Bautista at Camden Yards. He got to first base. Ryan Mountcastle was laughing at him, just like, How did you do that? You're the most locked in dude on the planet right now. Uh it, hitters like, you know, Brian Baker, right? Like Teoscar Hernandez turned him around. Like it's just Baker's throwing hard, right? So, you know, 9799 like as weird as it is like isn't that exceptional anymore in the big league levels now for Merriweather is just going to be commanding it and location because I don't think he's going to learn to add cut or sink or run or ride to his fastball in the next four weeks which is fine and yeah I think I think the command is a little unpredictable at this point just with the amount of time that he's missed you see that sometimes with Tommy John guys where the command takes a little bit more time to come back than the velocity or even than the pure stuff, like the the break on the pitches, for example. And and so for both Pearson, Nate Pearson, who's who's now uh, been been promoted, I guess you could say, to AAA Buffalo as he tries to make his return. But for both Pearson and for Merriweather, they've missed so much time that the reps aren't there. And so the command, I think, is a real variable, not something to be taken for granted. And that's where, to me, both those guys, but you know, especially Merriweather, because he's the one who's actually on the major league team, these guys are uncertain. It's hard to place where that confidence level is. 
let's uh, take a quick Pearson diversion since we're here. Level of confidence in Nate Pearson contributing for the Toronto Blue Jays this year? I got to say low, yeah. um, depending on what you mean by contributing. I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he pitches for them at some point. Contributing, though, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I think it's got to be low. It's just at this point, he's got to show me something before I can say I have any confidence in Nate Pearson. I'm intrigued. My eyes are open. I'll be watching. I'm not writing anyone off. But do I have confidence? No. He's going to have to go to Buffalo and absolutely break the door down to the big leagues. Like I, I think it's possible. He's that talented and he's that good sure. and his stuff is that exceptional. But he's going to have to go and like put up an absurd strikeout rate, tons of swinging strikes, not be walking anybody, location, command, poise on the mound, confidence, bouncing back strong in between outings. Like He is going to have to nail everything. And the, then the Blue Jays in turn are going to have to have a need in their bullpen like that's like the, the those are the circumstances that we're looking at right now for nate pearson to contribute to this team so like, I, i'm honestly not expecting it until i've seen nate pearson just blowing the doors off in buffalo yeah. i think really he's just like getting some innings right now and he's just sort of building back up for what will likely be a busy winter of pitching and that could be the arizona fall league that could be the Caribbean. That could be Australia. I mean, there's you know some differing opinions right now. I think on like where what environment would be best for Nate Pearson, but Nate Pearson is gonna be in games this winter because he is he just needs them. He hasn't had enough reps over the last couple of years. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's there's the mental side of it. There's the physical side of it. There's the command. There's the reading swings. All the all the developmental opportunities. I guess you could say. He just hasn't had them. So now's the time. Yeah. And you can like put him on a mound in Dunedin or put him in a pitching lab somewhere. He's had plenty of that over the last couple of yeah. years. What he needs is to be in games, to be facing competition and learning how to make adjustments in games and what to do when he doesn't have this during an outing. It doesn't have that. Like he just needs that experience. So that's really going to be the offseason task for Nate Pearson uh, behind the plate. Alejandro Kirk, Danny Jansen. Where's the confidence level at? Where's the playing time going to be at going forward? How do you see this breaking down? Because we saw Alejandro Kirk in that Orioles series start three days in a row behind the plate. Hadn't seen him do that yet to this point in the season. That's right. Three days in a row. Um, so that is a big, uh, big ask of Alejandro Kirk uh, with an off day Thursday. I mean, the way Kirk has hit and he continues to hit, still more walks than strikeouts, average around 300, just a tremendous offensive season. And one that, you know, again, not to pick on anyone here, but say Santiago Espinal, also a first-time All-Star this year, Santiago Espinal has really fallen off offensively. Alejandro Kirk, in contrast to that, has really provided the Blue Jays and anyone else watching with more reason to believe that what he's doing is sustainable. And so that applies in the short term as well as the long term. And so as the Blue Jays play this stretch of games that's incredibly meaningful, of course you're going to find ways to get Danny Jansen in there. I'm sure Jansen will start at least a third, maybe two out of every five behind the plate. And then you have Kurt catching potentially three of five and DHing one of those other five. All of a sudden you have him in the lineup most days, which you really want because he's so important to you offensively. So I think there are ways to get Jansen in there two to three times out of every five. Then he's playing four or five times a week, staying fresh. And yet Kirk is probably the one who shoulders a bit more of the load. Sample size of zero plate appearances. Who is the Blue Jays leader in Wade Runs Create Plus this season? Sample size of zero. Okay. 
Literally um, everybody. Anybody who's made a plate appearance. Who is anybody. the Toronto Blue Jays okay. leader in Wade Runs Career Plus this season? Man. You don't have to think that hard about it. Is it Kirk? It's Alejandro Kirk. And a drive to deep left field. Three run home run for Alejandro Kirk. But it's a big one. His 13th, lucky 13. As we yeah. sit here today, Thursday, September 8th, it's Alejandro Kirk. Wow. 141. Wow. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is in second at 133. That's all you need to I know. I mean, you think about that, right? Like, George Springer is on this team. Boba Shett's on this team. Vladdy's on this team. Chapman. Alejandro Kirk is the guy who has been the best. And again, that doesn't. that's not taking in position. That's taking in league. That's taking in ballpark. That's not giving him a positional adjustment. So just straight up, hitter to hitter, he's been their best hitter. Yep, in 462 plate appearances, Alejandro Kirk, 141 weight runs created plus. That's why he's going to see the lion's share of play behind the plate down the stretch because Danny Jansen is not hitting like that. Nobody on the team is hitting like no. that. But the Blue Jays are making decisions now where they are prioritizing getting Kirk's bat in the lineup because it just has been that good. Because it just has been that potent throughout the season and it's just bringing so much and even when he's had these sort of little power slumps that we've seen from him he's still getting on base and he's still making contact he's still working deep plate appearances i mean he's still seeing pitches well he's still contributing and having productive plate appearances so i just think that the reality right now for the blue jays is will we take a little bit of a hit defensively sometimes to get kirks in the bat in the lineup yes because we feel that's more optimal but it's also a credit to kirk and how far his defense has come he frames so well at the bottom of the zone it was another there were like so many other storylines i didn't get to from the orioles series one of them being the orioles changing their starting pitcher uh, in game two of the doubleheader letting the blue jays know about it four minutes before first pitch in the meeting at the plate are you kidding me um but another one was kirk catching gosman because he just vacuumed up pitches into the zone oh my goodness was he good for kevin gosman in that gosman outing you see it with manoa as well i mean his framing is exceptional and i think he's gotten better at some of the other defensive aspects behind the plate as well he's always going to clog up your base pass he's never going to be like like he's always going to be a station to station guy on the bases but i think that he has improved a lot defensively to a point where the blue jays feel really comfortable with him as kind of their everyday starting catcher in a low-key way right now and i think that's what we're going to see down the stretch yeah and the the balancing act there of course is you can't have him wear out um in three weeks time or in you know they want to win the world series right that's what they state as their goal so that's seven weeks from now you can't have him wearing out then um but of course Really, you have to have him fresh for for the playoffs, and then you just push at that point. You push with everything you have. So there's still a little bit of that balancing act right now where you still have to get Jansen in some of the time, whereas in the playoffs, it's possible Kirk starts like most of the game, like almost all of the games, depending on how the off days line up and the scheduling and day after night and so on. But yeah, he's such a good player, and you know, to the to the offensive points about him i mean you can look at the numbers in in various ways and point out his amazing bat to ball skills and and the emerging power but one of the things for me just watching the games is there's no bad matchup like you're never <sighs> there's never a pitcher a starting pitcher a reliever you're never like oh but kurt can't get to this guy because kurt can kind of get to everyone when he's on yeah final one and this is actually gonna be three players in one but sir related to what we're talking about and just the dispersion of playing time now and the way those decisions are being made differently Whit Merrifield, Santiago Espinal, who you mentioned, 
Cavan Biggio. Like, think about these three guys, right? You mentioned Espinal, a literal all-star. Playing in the all-star game like seven weeks ago, had like an OPS up over 800 at one point this season. He started 20 of the Blue Jays' last 34 games since the beginning of August. Part-time player for mm-hmm. the last you know month and change. Kevin Biggio, right? A guy who like lost his job to Espinal early this season. He's on COVID IL for a while. He was in the minors for like two weeks, came back. He was playing first. He was playing corner outfield. Now all of a sudden you're seeing him get more run at second base and you're seeing him in the lineup like just as often as Santiago Espinal is. Over that same sample since the beginning of August, Biggio's had 17 starts to Espinal's 20th. That's been much more of a timeshare. Whit Merrifield, who was like as close to Cal Ripken as anybody gets these days, right? Played every day, literally every single game for the Kansas City Royals for like five years. Led MLB in games played from 2018 through to the point that he was traded to the Blue Jays this season. Ross Atkins called him an everyday player at the deadline. Had more hits than anybody in baseball since 2018 at the po- at the time. He started nine of Toronto's last 22. What do you make of the playing time between these three, the confidence level in, with these three? How, how should John Schneider be using them going forward? Well, I think the first two, Espinal and Biggio, deserve the starts. And I think that they can effectively be used in that platoon. Biggio maybe plays a little bit of corner outfield or first base as needed. Espinal, you know, if Chapman or Bo needs a day, he's the guy to slide over there. And so I think that's a platoon that works reasonably well for the Blue Jays. I don't think you need to mess it up. I don't think Whit Merrifield, based on the offensive production that we're seeing from him, deserves to be in that conversation as a starter right now. I think he is someone who provides you versatility. I think he's a nice 20, well, sixth at this point, 28th man on the roster to potentially slide around, do different things, give you good base running if you need it. You're not scared to start him. He's totally fine if you if you uh, need to start him at, at certain points, but I don't think you're going out of your way to find starts for Whit Merrifield simply because you look at the offensive production this year and we got a big enough sample and the results are pretty clearly well below average. And so you have better options. So use them. Merrifield's a classic guy where if it was like June, July, it would be, oh, he just needs some more runway to come out of it because there's a track record there over the course of his career. It's a bunch of batted ball and expected statistics that suggest like he's deserved better. Um, you know, the strikeout rate with the Blue Jays is way, way inflated from where it's been in his career, and the contact rate's been way lower. So, like, you would expect those things to come back around. I can't imagine there's been just a cliff with his batted ball ability that he's suddenly dropped off of. Um, There's a lot of signs there that if you give him the runway and you give him the time, he would come out of this and play better. This time of the year, you can't do that, though. This time of the year, you have to overreact to cold streaks. Like You have to act quicker to take players who are cold out of the lineup and to ride hot streaks. So Kevin Biggio is on like sneaky a little bit of a hot streak right now i wouldn't call it like a dramatic like Bo Bichette style hot streak but since he came back in may i mean like he's been pretty solid kevin biggio has so i think he would ride that a bit more it's the same thing with espinal right pretty cold since the all-star break that's why he's been seeding starts to kevin biggio i mean you know it's it's really a dynamic 
daily decision for John Schneider right now with who gets into his lineup. And I think he's, you know, rating that recent performance. He's considering matchups, track records. He's thinking about how each player profiles offensively and how that fits in his batting order. If you've got that line of really aggressive right-handers, it is kind of nice to put Kevin Biggio's left-handed bat in there and just like his different approach at the plate in there so that an opposing starter can't fall into that rhythm of like here's how i'm attacking you and i attack you the same way and you the same way and you the same way it's all of a sudden okay here's the left-handed hitter who's a bit more discerning and a bit more patient and takes more pitches it kind of breaks you out of that rhythm and gives you something else to think about and i think you've like you've seen that impact that he can have when he's hitting seventh and eighth and kind of bringing that before that run of aggressive righty starts up again at the top of the lineup I think you're considering defense. I think you're considering, you know, who's on the mound, base running. I think that every night, like John Schneider's kind of making that dynamic decision about who's going to give the Blue Jays the best chance to win on this night in these circumstances against that starter in this ballpark with this pitcher on the mound for us, et cetera. And I think that the really good thing that John Schneider's done is he's communicated that directly to each player and he has reinforced it. Like it wasn't just a one-time conversation at the beginning of August. It's like a daily thing of like telling those guys, here's why we're making those decisions. Like, here's why your playing time is what it is. Like, it's kind of an underrated thing about John Schneider and (laughs) a bit of a difference between him and the guy that he replaced is that he is really communicative with his players and his players know exactly why decisions are being made. They know exactly where they stand. I think that makes it a lot easier for those pitchers to buy into role changes when you're talking about an all-star becoming a part-time player or like an Ironman everyday starter for five years becoming a guy who really isn't starting very much at all. Yeah, for sure. All those things definitely make a difference for those uh, for everyone involved. You know, to the points on, on Merrifield too, I think some of it is, you know, you just look at those indicators, right? Beyond the batting average, beyond the OPS and you see the barrel rate that's just a bit down. You see the expected weighted on base that's pretty low the strikeout rate is a little bit up you know he still doesn't strike out a ton but this is someone whose expected and advanced numbers are not particularly good either so there's just nothing really to recommend him taking those starts and i'm sure john schneider would find a better way to phrase it than that (laughs) when he's talking to whit merrifield but ultimately uh you know it is it's it's clear that his results all season long and the process that's led to those results has not been great. So right now, he's more in that supplemental role. We'll see where that leads for him and for the Jays. I take your point. I, you know, Mine would be more so that like his expected batting average, his expected slugging, his expected weighted on base are all higher than the actual numbers. They aren't the ex- the expected numbers aren't fantastic, right? Like the expected numbers, even if he reached those, wouldn't be that of somebody who's going to carry your offense. But the fact that they are all better than the actual numbers, like tells me he has been unfortunate and there is room for him to perform better. But like, look, it's September, like it's stretch run, postseason push. You're playing the teams you're directly competing against in a playoff race. If Whit Merrifield isn't being productive and isn't giving you great plate appearances, like you have to diminish his playing time. And he's okay with that. Like he understands that. And he has been a total team player about it and a total professional about it. If you ask anybody in that clubhouse, like he hasn't been complaining about it. Um, And sort of the other thing to note with Biggio that I just quickly looked up since he came back from the minors in late May, 
He's hit 245, 335, 446, nearly a 14% walk rate. Some consistency from Kevin Biggio. Again, not carrying your lineup with those numbers by any means, but absolutely like giving you something from the 7-8 position in your order when you also layer in the defensive versatility as well. If the Jays get this from Kevin Biggio for the rest of his career, I think they're thrilled. I, yeah. I think that I think they keep him. I think that you keep him through his arm years at that point. Like that's a really good player. Um, it's a really useful contributor on a lot of fronts. And yeah, I mean, Kevin Biggio has really emerged and really reasserted himself as someone who yeah, I'm not going to say he's part of this team's core per se. Not when you have Springer and Bo and Vladdy and Manoa around, but he's someone who's a, an important contributor to this team. We truly could have done like a three-hour podcast today because we talked yeah. about all that stuff and we didn't get to like Alec Manoa who had this unbelievable outing on Wednesday. Yep. Bo Bichette who's been like service Jordan level. Romano. <laughs> the son hot. George Springer who we talked about every day yep. for the entire summer and now don't talk about anymore. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. who's having this fascinating season and whose ground ball rates are like through the roof right now and whose swing decisions are pretty alarming. Matt Chapman who like has just been the model of consistency and taken on like a massive role with this team in terms of leadership of late. Uh, like we, we didn't talk about any of those guys. Yeah. It's pretty incredible. We should at least give Boba Shad a little shout out because <laughs> you know, that's been, that's been quite a turnaround for him. And I think it reinforces to me where Boba Shad's floor is. Cause we saw that for most of the year and he was still around league average as a hitter playing one of the most demanding defensive positions, doing it every day on a contending team. None of those things are easy. Then he goes off for 10 days. Now you look up at the shortstop offensive leaderboards, Xander Bogarts, Trey Turner, Corey Seager, Bo Bichette, right there. So to me, he deserves a quick shout out if nothing else on, <laughs> on ATL um, for one of, the, one of the hottest weeks we've probably ever seen from a Blue Jays player in 2022. Remember when we were in the Bronx and we did the thing about, you know, what's one Blue Jay that they need more from over the rest of the season, right? And I... I think you said Barrios, I want to say. Um, mm-hmm. my, How's that right? going? I appreciate great. It. Mixed, mixed returns. Mine was Bo Bichette, who was like, oh, okay, yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> right? And, I th- and my point was, like, look, he's only had one hot streak all season. We know you can go on crazy heaters. Like, we know you can go on insane runs. And that's exactly what he's done here. He's never going to be happy with his 2022 at the end of the year, I promise you he's not going to be happy with the line on his Fangraphs page. He hasn't been happy with his performance all year. Even when he hits three home runs in a game, he doesn't look that happy about it, right? He's he's still got four weeks left in the playoffs, so who knows? Do you truly think Bo Bichette's going to get to the end of this year and be happy with how it went? If the Jays win the World Series, he will. Yes, <laughs> okay. They're a long way from that. <laughs> right. If they don't win the World Series or are yeah. taking out team result, yeah. separate team no, result. Right. When Bobachette thinks yeah. just about individual results in 2022, no. he's, I promise you, he's not going to be happy. No. He's insanely self critical. And I relate to that in a way that nobody's ever going to understand. <laughs> but like, he, he's just not going to be happy with, with what he did in 2022. And he's going to do a, like a lot of searching for things in the offseason. And he's going to do a lot of things to try to correct that going into next year and to be better. But what he can focus on right now doing right now is playing closer to his potential as he has which can be a huge leverage point for this lineup can make a massive difference could you imagine if you got Bo Bichette and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. playing to their potential for the next four weeks this team will skate into the postseason 
It'll be a cakewalk with a, for doubt. Forget just that Orioles series at the end being irrelevant. It would be the Red Sox one before it as well. Like it would, it would be maybe taking down the Yankees for the division if those two guys play up to their to their potential over the rest of the season. One of them has been for a week. We'll see if the other guy can too. This makes me wonder what's the Arden's Welling equivalent of a three home run game. And did we just see it in Baltimore, or is that like you know a day where you do like two TV hits and a podcast, or uh, what's what's the equivalent? Uh, I I don't know. I don't know what to say off of that. That wouldn't be just uh, soul crushing and depressing, uh, and not a way anybody wants to leave a podcast. Uh, he's Ben Nicholson Smith. I'm Arden Swelling. We're going to be with you throughout uh, the rest of the season and what is going to be a fascinating end to the Blue Jays run in 2022. I want to thank Luis Ramirez and Christian Ryan for their production this week and want to thank all you for listening. Talk to you next week on At The Letters.